<laughs> we are in a series uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And last week, Pastor Chad sort of started this book out for us, and he introduced us to the author who uh, identifies himself as Koheleth, or the teacher of the assembly. And this teacher is sort of on a mission. He's on a mission to find if there's any meaning in life. And as we look at Old Testament wisdom literature, in the book of Job, we see that Job loses everything, right? Job loses everything, and he's trying to see if there's any meaning under the sun in all of the pain. And this author, honestly, he's, he's more uh, going the other direction. He sort of puts the pedal to the metal. He has tons of wisdom, he has tons of money, and he utilizes all of it to see if he can suck any meaning out of life. He says, anything that my eye saw, I did not keep it from myself. If this is Solomon, right, scholars kind of differ. Some of this book may have been written by Solomon, some of it by others. But if this was Solomon, uh, 1 Kings tells us uh, of all of the the food that was necessary for just one day of Solomon's parties. Most, most, Most commentators would say that for a season of time, Every day, Solomon threw a party for fifteen to 20,000 people. I mean, he went after it. Booze, food, women, loud music. Like, he didn't have to put in the iPod. He would just be like, bring in my favorite band and have them play for me, right? <laughs> That's what he does. And his conclusion, as we found out last week, is hevel, right? Meaningless. That's how the whole book begins. Vanity, vanity of vanity, vanities. This is all just a giant waste of my time. I have not found any purpose in any of it. And Chad brought this sort of down to our own lives, right? Like we mow the lawn and we're like, oh, the lawn, look how good it looks. And then in a few hours, oh, oh no, right? It starts to grow again and it looks ratty. By the time next week, moms, right? I just saw a post from one of our moms on Facebook. She said, well, how do you keep up with the laundry? Right, and you finally get done. You're like, laundry's done. And then your son spills his spaghetti all over his shirt or pees in his bed. And round and round, hallelujah, right? And round and round it goes, right? It's just this, this seems like this never-ending cycle. And we wonder, like, is there any meaning in any of it? But in chapter three, it sort of zooms out. From the day-to-day to to the large, grand scheme of life. And again, the author finds out here, as we'll find out this morning, that we don't really have any control over any of this. Right day in and day out, we're reminded that we don't have control over the things in our lives. We may have control over little things. When it comes to the grand scheme, we really don't have control. Here's Good or bad, doesn't matter. Good or bad, right? Here's here's a, a, a real quick example of, some good. My son actually just won a fishing lottery. Uh, you, you, you put in this form to win this opportunity to fish in Castalia up just south of Sandusky. And uh, we actually got to do it last year. Dwayne Myatt, who's one of our elders here, won the fishing lottery and he took my son and I up to fish with him. And we, as we were talking, Dwayne said, I have, this is the first time I've won in 12 years. And I've been putting in an application for 12 years for me and for Holly and for Tara and for Tawny. Like he puts in all of these applications because they're transferable, right? So if my daughter wins, hey, pass that on over. For 12 years, he's been doing this and he finally won last year. My son submits one $3 application the first year and he wins, right? It's like he didn't have any control over that, right? We don't have any control over these things in life. And when it goes our way, we're like, hey, 
Awesome. Thank you, Lord. Right? Or usually we don't really chalk those up to God. It's kind of like, hey, things are going well. But a lot of times when things go the other way, we have serious questions for God. All right, I want you to think about when was the last time, really think about this, when was the last time that you really realized that you weren't in control? Maybe your car was at the Sam's Club down the street when it flooded just a couple weeks ago, right? You went in to get milk. Or maybe you live somewhere else in Parma or the Brooklyn area. And within literally a few minutes, your whole basement has feet of water. Or maybe you recently got news that you're sick or that a friend of yours is sick. We recently just found out we have friends, their beautiful daughter just graduated medical school. And she's young and she's talented and she's pretty and she's going to be a doctor and almost synonymously found out that this pain that she's been feeling is a disease that's in her muscles, and it's incurable. And by the time she's 35, she will be completely in a wheelchair, unable to do much of anything. So she had her plans, right, to be a doctor. But some of these things are out of our control. Maybe it was you realized that you're, in, that, that you're out of control because you just launched your four-year-old off on her, two, on her first two-wheeler, right? You did one of those, and there she goes. Whoa, be careful right? Or maybe you just handed the keys to your 16-year-old. Hallelujah, right? And you know that you are not in control anymore. Whether good, we're constantly reminded that we're not in control, and this is a huge issue for people, right? Because we, as Christians, right, we often, our answer is, well, God is in control. God is in control, right? That's the answer that we give to people and to one another, but sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we think, is he really? Is he really? As we look around our lives and as we watch the news, we go, if he is, he's not very good at it. Right? Aren't these the things that we think? I don't, I'm not sure I'll be able to answer the entire breadth of the questions that I just started to throw on the table here today. But I think Ecclesiastes is going to help us get started. So if you would pray with me over uh, our time together in God's word. God, we thank you this morning that you've given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us so that we might know you, that we might know ourselves, and that we might find the purpose of this life. That seems to be... Um, the search of everyone that I've ever met, truly, to find a meaning or purpose in life. And so as we venture to answer such a massive question in such a short amount of time, I'm asking you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would do something unique in this room and across the internet to the people that are watching today to help us see just a little bit of how we're supposed to make sense of this thing we call life. We ask all this in your name, amen. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting in verse one. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep, 
and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. This is a famous part of scripture. You might be familiar with it because the band, the Birds, actually put this to music. And in their infinite wisdom, they took this beautiful piece of poetry and added to it, turn, 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 turn. Wonderful songwriting, if you ask me. But this section of scripture has often been uh, misunderstood. It's been, it, this, the, I've, I've heard this section be, be taught as if, uh, it is show, showing us or telling us that there is an appropriate time in which to do things. Okay? There is an appropriate time when you should mourn. There is an appropriate time when you should laugh. But it's not meant to be read that way. What the author here is doing is he's talking about how things are under heaven. And he's not saying there's a time when you should mourn or a time when you should laugh or a time when you should make war or should make peace. He's saying there are times when you do those things. Do you see the difference? He's saying there are times when you do mourn. There are times when you do laugh, as if to remind us that we don't have any control over them, right? There's a moment when you are born, when you come to life. You don't have any control over that. There's not a, it isn't a you should come to life. It's you do. You just do. We don't have any control over the times when we mourn, right? My dad's here this morning, and if I stood up here and I said, I just want to ask you to mourn with me the death of my dad. He's right here. doesn't make any sense. Right? And when, when that happens, then I will mourn. It's something that I will do when that happens because of the effect on my heart and life. We don't choose when to plant, right? If you live in Ohio, you cannot stand right out in your garden and say, I will plant my tomatoes in December, and it just, we don't choose those things. It doesn't make any sense. Like a lot of times, we would choose when to pluck the things up, right? When we're ready for tomatoes and jalapenos and sweet corn, right? We, we want to get those out of the ground. But God has dictated the life cycle of those things, right? The author here is using these extremes, death and life, and planting and reaping, and laughing and crying, in order to give us a picture of the whole of life. This is the sense, this is what he does with the, with the poetic structure here, it's called meresmus, is he gives us these extremes as if to say, this is all of life and everything in between, and we don't have any control over it. All of these things happen, and it seems to be maddening, does it not? These things come and go, good and bad, highs and lows, happy and sad, and here we are with no real Control, although we really, really try. We really, really try to protect ourselves and save up enough money and not let our kids, you know, drive until they're really, 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 really ready so that we will have control. And the author's conclusion, as we look through this text, is that God made it this way. God made it this way. God made it so that all of these things happen and that we really can't control them nor understand them. And this frustrates the author. Right? Like, just like it frustrates us, the same thing that is happening in here happened in the first service. Not a whole lot of amens, just a whole lot of 
Mm-hmm. Right? It's frustrating. Especially when the bad things come to our lives. We end up going, why? What in the world did I do? Why this? Why now? See, because the majority of the time, we don't really understand how this thing applies or how it fits into the big picture. John Piper says that when things happen in our lives, there are some reasons as to why those things happen. And we might know two, three, four of those reasons when there are overtime billions. And we can't see them. And it's maddening because like, if somebody tells you the reason that they do something, it makes it a little bit more easy to understand, right? Like if, there, if, if, if the boss comes to you and says, you're fired, your, your, your first response is probably not, oh, well, you're the boss and you know it's best, so I'll just pack up my things. Probably not, right? You're going to ask why. And maybe he doesn't answer you. I can't talk about it. You're just going to need to pack up your things and go home. Right? The whole way home, you're going to wonder, why? Why? We're not downsizing. I know that. Things are going well. I didn't do anything wrong. Why did, why did he fire me? But if he tells you the reason, maybe he comes and he says, I'll tell you the reason. In three months, we're actually creating a new position, and it's higher pay, and we're going to give you that job. Well, then you're happy as a clam that you just got fired. Right? The next three months are like paid vacay. You're good to go, right? You're, everything's fine because you understand why the bad thing happened. But if you don't know the answer to that question, if the boss keeps it from you, you spend three months miserable trying to figure out how you're going to pay the bills, how you're going to take care of your family, what your next job is going to be. And this is the frustration that this author is sort of giving to us. It, it is meant to mirror our frustration. If all of this is God, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me because he hasn't told me any of the answers. And so he launches into some additional frustration here in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? What's the point? Right? He has asked this question in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. What gain has the worker from his toil? Like, what really do I get? I wake up in the morning to go to work so that I can pay the bills and take care of my family so that tomorrow I can wake up and go to work and pay the bills and take care of my family so that next week I can get up and go to work, pay the bills to take care of my family, and then I die. And maybe you bought a few things on the way. Maybe you went to a few nice places on the way. Maybe you had some really bad things happen on the way, but he's like, at the end of the day, it's pretty much the same old, same old, and then you die. What gain has the worker from his toil? And then he explains this burden, this problem. He sort of defines it in, in verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So the word business, if you're reading ESV, it says I've seen the business that God has given. I don't care for that so much. I like the way the NIV translates it. The NIV says, I've seen the burden that God has given to man. The, 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 the word in the Hebrew, ainyan, is like laborious busy work, right? Here, move these rocks from here to there. 
this burden, and he's sort of describing, like, I've seen the life that God has given to the people, and it seems like a burden, and here's why it's a burden. Where he's made everything beautiful in its time and put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot see the beginning to the end. So the picture is that we can see that God has made everything beautiful, right? We can see as we look around both into the intricacies of how our body works, into nature, right? We can see there's a God out there. There's something bigger than me. There's something with a purpose out there. And he's put eternity into our hearts, right? God has supernaturally put something into us because we're made in his image that there's something else. There's something else outside of this life. There is eternity. There is heaven and hell. There's, there's something more, right? That's why even people who don't buy into Christianity are trying to grab some sort of something because it's in us. There's something out there, a bigger being, right? Something that's over all of us, yet so we cannot find out what the whole plan is. It's maddening, right? Romans 1 reminds us, right, for, it, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Yet they are without excuse. And so we see all of this beauty. Eternity is in our hearts. There is something bigger than me out there. And I just can't figure out what the whole plan is. Right, when things happen to our life, when your mom gets sick, or when your young son passes away, or when you lose a job, and on and on and on we go, how does any of this make sense? God, I know you're out there. It doesn't make sense to me. This is why the author calls it a burden. It's frustrating. And so he draws two conclusions. There are two pairs of conclusions, starting in verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So his two conclusions are this. I can't have any control over the future. I can't have any control or change the past. So I might as well just kind of be nice, right? Do good things, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Like, that's his conclusion. Like, I just live in the here and now. He's not talking about like being lavish. He's just saying like, just enjoy right now. It's not a necessarily bad thing that he's concluding. It's just kind of like, if you can't control it, go fishing, man. Put some steaks on the grill. And then his second conclusion is that I can't change anything. What's been has been, and what will be will be. God controls all of it, and he's done it so that men will fear him. He's just done it so that everybody will go, whoa, God. It's not necessarily a bad conclusion, but is it a complete conclusion? These things aren't necessarily wrong. I just think they're incomplete. Because here's the thing. 
To understand Ecclesiastes, we can't stay in Ecclesiastes. The benefit that we have that Koheleth did not have is that we have the New Testament. We leave on this side of what Jesus has accomplished. And so only in him will we find the answers that Koheleth is looking for. He cannot find them, and he's driven to madness. He's driven to extreme frustration. Because look at verses 12 and 14. What do those sentences start with? Answer me. I perceived, right? I perceived. In all of his wisdom, still, I, what, what I perceive, my conclusions are, this is as good as it's going to get. Enjoy life and fear God. Not necessarily bad conclusions, but incomplete conclusions. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We have to make sense of this. Kohalesque conclusions are not satisfactory for me. And nor should they be satisfactory for you. And I want you to go to verse 28 and don't moan and groan. Just give me a second to work this out, okay? Romans 8, 28 says, it's famous. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together according, or work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes, right? We use this verse all the time. We put it on fancy little cute things and magnets. We put it on Facebook. And we tell people this when they're hurting. And let me be honest with you. This verse by itself pulled out of context helps nothing. It doesn't. It, it, it has the same problem that Ecclesiastes has. If you just take that verse by itself, the natural inclination right after somebody says that, is to go, prove it to me. He's working all things together for good in your life, brother and sister. Prove it. I can't tell right now. Right? Like a lot of times, when you see that on Facebook and it's sent to you, like when you're mourning something deep and somebody puts just that verse on your Facebook wall, you wish that you could just like smack them. And you want to go, you have no clue what I'm going through right now. And you put this verse with a picture of the ocean on my Facebook wall. And that's supposed to help me? Right? These are the things that, that I walk through and I'm sitting in my office. If that's the only answer I have, what I'm going to get is, that doesn't help me, pastor. doesn't help me, Pastor. That's all you've got? In the middle of what I'm going through, how in the world can I believe that God is good? That he's using this for his good? Are we just supposed to have some sort of blind faith that, hey, hopefully someday it'll all be good? I want to use an illustration here, or a couple illustrations, actually, to help us a bit. The late Derek Kidner, if you want to dig into Ecclesiastes, Derek Kidner's book, The Message of Ecclesiastes, is, is short and profound and fantastic. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, lay-level commentary on Ecclesiastes. Here's what he says. We're like the desperately nearsighted inching along, inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco in an attempt to take it in. 
We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us, for we can never stand back far enough to view it as the Creator does, whole and entire, from the beginning to the end. Right? So it's like we are this little, and we are on the grand tapestry of all time. All time, all space, all actions, all everything. And it is utterly impossible for us to zoom out from our little spot in the world to see the whole picture that God has painted. But here's the thing, folks. Christianity does not offer you and I the opportunity to zoom all the way out. Christianity does not offer you and I the opportunity to zoom all the way out and see the way that all of the things that come in and out of our lives make sense. It doesn't allow you to see why that thing that happened in your relationship or to your family or to your job fits into the grand scheme of things. But I would propose to you that God does not just ask us to act in blind faith. That he doesn't throw Romans 8.28 out at us and just say, hope you believe that. I want you to move a few verses down in Romans 8 to verse 31. It says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When I was young, I had a little dirt bike, and I sold it. And a guy came, and he had his car, and uh, he, was just, he, was, he was in the area and stopped by to see if he wanted it, and he did want it. Uh, but he had to come back the next day with his truck. And so he wanted to guarantee that I would keep that dirt bike there for him. And so he handed me five $100 bills. I was happy as a clam. And I put them in my pocket, and that is what we call a down payment. Right? I kept that $500, and I did not sell that to anybody else because the guy wanted it, and he would come back tomorrow and pick up the motorcycle. And this is what God is telling us in Romans 8.31. I am working all things for good for those who love me and who are called according to my purposes. How do I know? Prove it, right? That's the, that's the question we've been begging. Prove it. God is saying, here's how I'm going to prove it. I'm going to put a down payment on this promise. And it's not just going to be some weak down payment. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put my son's life on the line. I'm going to put my son, Jesus Christ, in front of my own wrath to pay for the penalty of the sins of my enemies to prove to you the depth of my love for you and that I will, in everything in its time, that I will make everything good and right and perfect and holy. Right? That's what he's, I'm laying down this down payment. How will he then not give us all things? He has given us the most important thing in his world, right? In, in all of eternity, the most important thing he has laid down for us as a down payment. That is the answer to the why. How can I know that all things are working together for good? Because God's not leaving that kind of down payment on the table. He will return and make all things right. Of course we can't see it, church. We're too close. We're too close, and we cannot zoom out, and he asks us to trust him, but not blindly. He leaves us, his son, as a guarantee for the fullness 
of his plan. As we circle back around, I want to point something out to you, and we're going to close. The first verse of Ecclesiastes, you don't need to turn back there, says there is a time and a purpose for everything under heaven. And that word time, a time to be born, is repeated over and over throughout Ecclesiastes to show that God has control of the times. There is a time to be born. There is a time to die is the first verse. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you'd like. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God is in control of the times and in the perfect time, he sent his son. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. Romans 5, verses three through six. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. All of the times belong to him. In the right time, he is making all things good and new. As we close, I want you to notice that this promise in Romans 8.28 is not for everyone. It's not a universal promise. It doesn't just say he is working all things together for good, period. There's a comma. It says, for those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. And so, what that means is that those who do not love him, those who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, everything is not working out good for you. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, everything is not working out good for you. For you, this is as good as it's ever gonna get. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just checking out church. You're just, you know, coming to see you. Or maybe you're online and you're like, eh, I'll see what's going on at this church here in my area. And you've been searching for meaning. You've been searching, searching for hope. You've been trying to find something to fill the void. Maybe you've tried a lot of things. Maybe you've tried a lot of things in your life and all of it just seems to keep coming up empty. And with this author in Ecclesiastes, you would say, meaningless, pebble. This is all a vapor. This morning, I'd like to offer you a different option. I'd like to offer you something new, something that really will satisfy you. That verse in Romans 5 that we read is just a real small recap of what we call the gospel or the good news. There's good news. And the news is this, that we have a problem, and that problem is called sin. And you and I realize that we have this problem because we do it all the time, every day. And sin ruins our relationships. It ruins things around us. It seems to make everything meaningless and pointless. And above all, it, re- it ruins our relationship with God. It separates us from him. But 
because of his great love for us, this is the good news, because of God's great love for us, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to earth to live a perfect life and to die on a cross to take the punishment that you and I deserve. This is his down payment for us, that everything will work out for good. Three days later, as we just celebrated Easter, Jesus rose from the grave in order to prove to the world that he conquered sin and death. And he promised when he went back to heaven that he would return someday. And the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians and Revelation and other places give us a picture of what that will look like. And at the end of Revelation, he says, I'm making all things new. And there will be no more crying. And there will be no more weeping. For the dwelling place of God will be with man. And this morning, if you've been searching for meaning and you've come up empty, I want to invite you to give your life to Jesus. I want, you to, I want to invite you to try something different, something new, something that really will satisfy, something that will begin to give you a new meaning and a new purpose in life, something that will give you a hope for your future. And so I'm going to ask everyone, if you would, just bow your heads with me. And if you're here this morning and you'd like to give your life to Jesus, I'm not saying that you'll have all the answers in this moment. I'm not saying that you'll be able to zoom out and understand it all, but I'm saying that you can take advantage of the down payment that Jesus has offered, that you can find true meaning and true hope and true life. If you would just repeat this prayer after me, you don't have to say it out loud. You can say it quietly in your seat. But if this is really the truth that's in your heart, I'd invite you to do that with me. God, I've looked everywhere to find meaning. I've tried and still keep winding up empty. I can't seem to find any purpose in any of this. But what if, I, but if what I learned this morning is true, that you died for me, that you've offered purpose in this life and hope for a future, then I need you. I need you to make sense out of all this. I know that I've sinned and that I need forgiveness I believe this morning that Jesus came to this earth to take the penalty for my sins and to offer me a new life both now and for eternity. Jesus, would you come into my life? Would you make me new? Would you forgive my sins and give me purpose? I submit my life to you. Amen. As we close this morning, maybe you're here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, but you're in the middle of a battle. Maybe that battle has been going on for just a few days. Maybe that battle has been going on for a couple months, or maybe it's been a couple years, and you're in it, and you're just wondering, what is all of this for? Sometimes you're in your room at night, and you just go, why me? What are you doing? Maybe it's sickness, or slander, or marriage, or lack of marriage, or abuse, or anger, or debt, or a thousand other things. I hope that this text has reminded you today that God understands the difficulty that you battle with. And here's how I know. Here's how I know that God understands fully the depth of wherever you're at, where you sit. I don't. 
but God does, and here's why. Because when God put his son down as the down payment for your life and for my life, what happened in that moment is that God allowed the greatest, most heinous evil of all time to happen. The greatest, most evil, heinous, disgusting sin of all time happened when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. And God was so disgusted by the sin, all of our sin that was on him, that he turned his face away from his son. And he allowed that to happen so that the greatest good in all of history might happen, namely the redeeming of God's enemies back to himself. He knows your pain because he has suffered the greatest pain because he saw the greatest good that was to come of it. And so what he's asking you to do this morning is just to trust him. Say, I've put the down payment on the table. Would you trust me? I've got you. I'm holding you in my hands. I know you can't see it, right? He's pleading with us. I know you can't see it. You're too close. You're too close, but I can see it. I can see it. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be good. And I look forward to that one day when this life is over and we get to zoom out and go, wow. We see it. That's what he was doing. Wow. It was all worth it. All the pain, all the tears, it was worth it. We're going to close this morning in worship. We're going to sing songs that will confirm this trust in God. And if you need to kneel and weep, if you need to hug a friend, I want to encourage you to do that. But here's what I want to also encourage you to do. We've asked the band not to come out and just Brian and Jen on the piano. Because one of the things that the body of Christ is meant for, why do we sing when we come together? What's different than just singing with the radio? Is hearing brothers and sisters on the other sides of us and in front of us and behind us lifting up the name of Jesus and claiming the truths about him. Having other brothers and sisters sing, you are God, I am not. Help me to know that you're in control is part of being the community, the body of Christ. And so I want to encourage you to sing if you would like to sing. And if people around you can hear you, that's the point. That's the point. Let us believe that his down payment is good enough. Amen? And let us look forward to the day when we zoom out once and for all and see the whole thing and go. He knew what he was doing. Amen.